All right, it's great to be back with you again this morning. I commend you for getting up early on a Saturday and coming out. I, I am thankful for the weather. I mean, if you looked outside this morning, there's not much else to do than come here, right? It's not a great day for hiking or going to the beach, so uh, glad that you made it here. Let me get the microphone going. So this morning we're going to talk about uh, one of the most eye-opening things to me, which is understanding unbelievers. Have you ever wanted to know what someone is thinking? You know, oftentimes parents of teenagers want to know what their teens are thinking, and teens want to know what their parents are thinking. Uh, There's a, a funny cartoon or picture going around the internet where it's a husband and wife laying in bed facing opposite directions, and she's laying there thinking, I wonder what's wrong. He's so quiet. Maybe he regrets marrying me. Maybe he wishes he did something else with his life. And she's thinking all these thoughts. It's like three paragraphs of thoughts, and they show the little thought bubble above the guy, and he's like, my motorcycle didn't start this morning. That's all he's thinking about. Uh, in Romans 1, we are given an insight into what's going on in the heart and mind of every unbeliever, which to me was revolutionary to hear because I always wondered when I'm trying to share the gospel with someone, what are they thinking? What's going on? Am I trying to tell them something that they have no idea what I'm saying? So take your Bibles and turn to Romans 1. And let's see, hopefully you'll find the same kind of encouragement throughout this session because God gives us that insight into what's going on in their hearts and minds. And once we learn that, it alleviates a lot of the fear and pressure because, as we'll see in just a moment, God says when you're sharing the gospel with someone, you're not starting a dialogue with them, trying to tell them something they don't know. You're actually involved in a trialogue where God every day is speaking to them the truth of his existence by the, by the nature of the way the world is made. And when you enter that conversation, you're joining something already in progress. And what you're doing is you're telling them something that they know that they're trying to reject and to hold back. So let's take a look at Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. We're told, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what is revealed? God's wrath against sin. So right off the bat, he's saying unbelievers are well aware that they're guilty before God and that they're deserving of God's wrath, <clears throat> who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, clear to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So essentially what this passage is saying is that the basics about who God is, his existence, his holy nature, and the person's guilt before him is is clearly understood from the time a person is born. And from the time the creation of the world, people know that they are guilty. So notice a few things here in your notes. First of all, every unbeliever already knows that God exists and knows some things about him. Now, sometimes we find this hard to believe, don't we? 
especially if you've met someone who's a hardened atheist uh, or just someone who is uh, so thoroughly skeptical. And, and they might even say to you something like, prove God exists to me. We'll talk about that later. What do you say when someone says that? There's actually really good answers. But you might have someone that says, I don't think God exists and I don't believe God exists, so prove God exists to me. And we'll see in just a moment what that person is doing is trying to turn a blind eye to something that they know to be true that they cannot deny, and yet people do it anyways. It says here in the passage, first of all, every person is made in the image of God. How do we know that people know God? It's because by their very nature, according to Scripture, a person is made to image God. It would kind of be like if, if you know someone whose kids look just like them. Now, I don't think Ryan looks just like me, thankfully, for his sake. Um, but I have had people walk up to me and say, I think I met your son on campus because I heard someone that was talking. It sounded just like you. Uh, and, and I said, are you, are you Mark Farnham's son? Uh, sometimes people know my daughters because they think they look like me, which is really unfortunate. But you know, if you've met someone that looks spitting image of their parents, for that person to deny, oh, I don't know who that is, it's like, uh, you, you know, okay, you're playing a prank because you look just like them. And Romans 1 is saying, because we are made in the image of God, every one of us, we are made to reflect his glory. Uh, we possess dignity and worth in that sense, not moral worth, but we're made in the image of God. And as a result, then, we can't help but to know God. Secondly, every person, we're told, has the implanted knowledge of God. That is, the verse tells us that what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. From birth, people have this uh, God consciousness, not in the New Age style where they're divine beings, but this realization that there is something out there. I've read stories of atheists that were very careful with their kids never to expose them to the thought of God or to anything Christian or religious in any way. And then all of a sudden they're driving in the car one day and the atheist kid says, uh, Mommy, what's God like? like? Where did you hear about that? Or we need to pray about this. Why would, where would you hear about prayer? It's because that is inescapable. And really you see this in different world religions where um, in every world religion there is this sense of guilt or um, fault before some deity or some divine being that we have to make offerings to. Uh, there's a great book written years ago by a missionary called Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson, where he documents, uh, for example, in the Amazon River Basin, you might have a you know, Stone Age tribe that every year floats a raft full of gifts down the river to the river god. Why do they do that? Because intuitively they know that they have guilt before whatever is divine and they have to appease that wrath. Uh, so every religion, every belief system has this. Even take a person who is non-religious, who makes offerings to the God of their choice. So let's say their, their God is material financial success. What are the offerings? So the offerings of their family. Let me sacrifice my family in order to obtain my God, my, my idol in my life, you know, success and material blessing. Thirdly, what can be known about God is his holy nature. Holy nature of God and his wrath against sin is clear, plain, and well known by unbelievers. Now, we're told in the New Testament that unbelievers can sear their conscience. They can uh, suppress that so much to the point that they're insensitive. 
Uh, and, and it goes on to say, those who suppress the knowledge of God most severely are those who give up like natural affections, parents who have no love for their children, no concern. And we see that in our society, not only in abortion, but also in, in things like people abandoning their children, uh, people neglecting their children, uh, having no natural affection to care for those uh, in, their, uh, in their own genetic line, as the scientists would like us to believe. That's all it is. And then lastly, this knowledge of God, we're told at the end of verse 20, makes them without excuse. It's kind of like if you have little children and give them a chores chart. You know, first you tell them, okay, you've got to make your bed every day. The child doesn't do that. Okay, we're going to put a chart up on the refrigerator and you've got to check off your chore every day. When the child says, I forgot, what do you say as a parent? <laughs> That's no excuse, right? Anybody ever have your parents tell you forgetting is no excuse growing up? Yeah, and it's no excuse because it's right there. And God says every person you and I encounter knows God exists and they're without excuse before him. So, so begin to think about some of the people in your life, friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members. The Bible says here in Romans 1 that they know God, that they're well aware that they're guilty before God. And we'll see in just a moment there's a natural reaction to that. But when you talk to them about God, you are bringing up something to them that they know to be true. When the question comes in, well, then why do they deny it? You know, why are there such things as atheists if they know it to be true? So that brings us to the second point. Uh, oh, here's a great little cartoon. Uh, the patient says to the doctor, I have metal fillings in my teeth. My refrigerator magnets keep pulling me into the kitchen. That's why I can't lose weight. <laughs> Obviously not a good excuse, right? And, and neither is any excuse that's brought up by someone who tries to deny God's existence. This is a picture. I have to explain this picture because people think, what is going on there? She's suppressing a sneeze, right? Ever put your finger under your nose? So every unbeliever suppresses the knowledge of God in an attempt to escape the accountability. So Romans 1.18, we're told again, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That is what... Why are there people who don't believe? It's because they know the truth of God. They know their guilt before God. This is what we call natural revelation. They're aware of this. It doesn't give them the gospel clearly. That's why Paul says in Romans 10 that someone needs to preach the gospel to them. Someone needs to tell them about Jesus because you can't learn that naturally, but you can learn the existence of God, that he's holy and that you're guilty before him. So, so why don't people believe? Because they're suppressing the truth of God. Think of a picture of a uh, beach ball. Uh, if you've ever gone to the water as a kid and tried to hold a ball underwater in a pool or at the beach, you know, if you push that ball underwater, what's it doing the entire time? Trying to get back up out of the water. If, if, the, if the ball sank to the bottom of the pool, you'd say, I just broke physics, I think, because that's, that's not supposed to happen. A ball will always pop back up out of the water. And so it's happening in the unbeliever's life every day as they are taking this knowledge of God, which rises up in them daily through the things that are made, through the way the world is, through the very nature of who they are as, as people made in God's image. And they are pushing that down, trying to suppress that knowledge so that they don't have to face up to the reality. We, we know this happens all the time in, in people that hear terrible news from a doctor, right? And I'm sorry, you've got cancer, you've got six months to live. No, that can't be. 
no, I, I don't believe you. I'm going to get a second opinion. Or, you know, you get a phone call. Someone's been in an accident. No, it can't be. I just talked to her. You must be mistaken. There's a natural reaction where we don't want to hear painful, difficult truth, so we try to suppress that. And Romans 1 says every person you meet is in some way pushing down, trying to suppress that knowledge of God. The word suppress here means to push down or hold back that which is trying to rise to the surface. And so think about people that you know that don't know the Lord. How are they doing that? There's lots of different ways. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But this I know. When I talk to someone, whether it's a total stranger or someone I know, if they're not a Christian, they are daily trying to resist that truth of the knowledge of God. So we have to ask ourselves, how does that happen? And let me share a few possible ways in which that kind of thing happens. Some people, and this is not in your notes, this is like a little bonus. Uh, usually students want grade bonus, but this is like bonus material. It's funny, in college I teach everything from eight, 17 and 18 year olds right out of high school to sometimes people in their mid-20s. And sometimes the 17 and 18 year olds are taking loans for college their parents are paying. So they tend to be not as appreciative as, uh, of instruction as the 22-year-old who's working their way through school. Um, and so the, those who are like uh, really working their way through school, striving hard to, to get through, are, are really appreciative of bonus material. So just pretend that you're working your way through. You had to pay for this conference. Um, here's some different ways people suppress the truth, by turning to other religions. One of the big questions in Christianity is, how can Christianity be true when there are so many other religions in the world? And one explanation is that it's just another religion. It's just another uh, way of people trying to depend on something outside themselves, either because they're weak and they need a God as a crutch, or it's just different expressions arise in different places of the world. Well, I think the, the Christian expression or Christian explanation for this is from the very beginning, since the garden, since Adam and Eve and, and Cain, first of all, rather than accept the truth of God and submit to that, people have developed alternative religions in order to suppress the truth that they're guilty before God. Because think about this. You can develop another religion in which you make it easier for yourself to appease the God, right? That's what most religions do. Just offer incense once a year, give some money, uh, go through some rituals, say some prayers, and I'm good with that divine being. But what does the Christian God demand of us? The Christian God demands that we stand before him, confess that we are guilty and hopeless and have no good in ourselves. For, for most people in the world, that's far more terrifying. Give me a religion where I can do some rituals, attend some festivals, give some money, go through some practices, and, and I'm good. That's one of the, this is one of the reasons why the gospel is so hard for people, because you have to stand before a holy God who has justly condemned you because of your sin and to admit that you are guilty. And then obviously to cry out to Christ for salvation. But that part of admitting, I am guilty, there's nothing good within me, is terrifying. So let me develop this other religion in order to cope with that. Other people fill their lives with distractions. So we're all familiar with the weapons of mass distraction, right? Social media, other things. And I'm not, I'm not against social media at all. But how many people fill their lives with distraction so that they don't have to face the reality of life? This is a major issue with younger generation today. 
you know, being so caught up in their own personal device, their phone, that they have a hard time relating to other people. And they're much more comfortable in their own little world. But the truth is it's spreading. It's no longer just the millennials that are doing this. I mean, I regularly run into uh, people in their 70s and 80s that are, you know, I, I spend, uh, you know, Mark, thank you for speaking on that because I spend like five or six hours a night on the Internet, you know, reading conspiracy theories or something like that. And, uh, you know, that way I don't, have, you know, and, and, so, and you'll have people, you know, I'm 51, so I'm an old guy, my age and older that say, well, I don't need to go to church because I just watch someone online. What is that? It's, it's distraction so that I suppress the truth and I don't have to face up to it. Some people drug themselves with substances so they don't have to deal with the guilt and pain. Why do people drink themselves to death and drug themselves to death and eat themselves to death? And, you know, where do uh, television addicts and sex addicts and, you know, uh, thrill addicts come from? It's because, and, and there's nothing wrong with so many of these activities, but people, rather than facing to the truth of God and coming to God and being in relationship with him, that's too terrifying. So I'm going to just drug myself so I don't have to face it. And I think we see this most clearly in popular culture. You know, Hugh Hefner just died and people were trying to make a paragon of virtue out of him, which was so bizarre. Uh, but, you know, what is that lifestyle all about? It's not facing up to the reality and trying to fill it with substitutes that can never satisfy that longing for God. So what happens then? Think about this. When, when you are when you're sharing the gospel or praying for someone, you know, Realize that in some way they're suppressing the truth of God in one of these ways. They're either developing their own religion or they're committed to another religion. They're trying to distract themselves so they never have to face up to the questions of their guilt before God. They're drugging themselves in some way. So as you're talking with them, which in the next hour we're going to talk about, how do you have conversations that are effective with unbelievers? One of the things I want to know is I want to ask enough questions about who they are, how they live to figure out what is this person doing to suppress the truth of God? Because they're doing something. So I got to figure out what that is so then I can begin to target that because that thing is a replacement for the truth of God. What happens when someone suppresses the truth? Suppression leads to, first of all, self-deception. I love this cartoon because I can totally relate. Portly man looking in the mirror. What does he see? He's a you know, muscular man in the mirror. When you begin to suppress the truth, you begin to deceive yourself, fool yourself. I'm fine. I'm a good person. And I, I've had a fair number of people in the churches I've done this tell me in private conversation, you know, I'm, I'm a good person, Mark. You know, this is good stuff and all, but I hope you don't think you're a good person. We're not. We're sinners saved by grace. There's nothing good within us. Our standing with God is entirely dependent on the perfect righteousness of Christ, not anything that we have done. And so what do people do? They suppress the truth by doing good things. I was born into an Irish Catholic family where I pastored in Connecticut, a lot of Italian Catholics. Talk about dedicated religious people. Why do they do that? Because they're deceiving themselves, trying to make themselves feel good, while every day they're bearing the burden of their guilt. And so what do they, you just keep heaping good works upon good works upon good works. Everyone tells you, oh, you're such a nice person. You care for other people in need. Yeah, yeah, I'm a good person. And all that is is a suppression of the reality of my guilt before God. Suppression also leads to irrationality. Irrationality. If I continue to suppress the truth, 
What happens over time is I start to say and believe things that are irrational, things that are clearly wrong. And here's some examples. I've drawn some of this from uh, atheists and, and evolutionist scientists who clearly rejecting God because of science. And yet think about how foolish some of these things are. So here's Thomas Nagel, professor of law and philosophy at NYU. He says, and he's, he's a brilliant man. I have several of his books. Uh, I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. What does he say? I want atheism to be true. And then he goes on to say this. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. See how irrational that is? That's someone saying, I don't care what the reality is. I don't want the reality to be that way. You know, you can go into your boss on Monday morning and say, I don't want to be a worker. I want to be the president of the company. You know, they're going to call the nice men in the white coats and they're going to take you away because that's irrational. No one can just declare that. And obviously we see that more and more in our society where people then are, are declaring their own identity, their own gender, and regardless of the obvious implications or the obvious truth of that. Here's another quote, Albert Leninger, biochemist at John Hopkins University. If you go to college, a standard textbook on biochemistry. He says, there's yet no satisfactory model or theory <clears throat> for the origin of the genetic code. He's saying, we don't know where the, the genetic code DNA came from. Excuse me just a second. <clears throat> he says, indeed, Francis Crick and Orgel have pointed out that it is not beyond reasonable, poss reasonable possibility that genes in the genetic code may have been brought to earth by, anybody want to guess? Spaceship from some other body in the universe where intelligent life had already evolved. Of course, this idea is no answer to the problem since one must then explain how life arose elsewhere. This man whose textbook is the standard textbook in biochemistry. I was at a church uh, earlier this year, and, and this uh, one of the men in the church is a biochemist, came up and showed me this quote. He said, I use this textbook. He said, I, I've never gotten over the fact that at the end of the book it says this. And, and he showed me, so this guy's brilliant, and yet he says, I don't know, maybe aliens brought the, the beginnings of life. Aliens? You're scientists? But that's what happens. You suppress the truth. It can't be a divine, infinite God who's revealed himself. It must be something for which we have no evidence because we don't want to accept the truth of a God to whom we're accountable. We're not accountable to aliens. And you see how that works then in the human heart. Every unbeliever you meet is doing that in some way, suppressing the truth. And if they continue to do it, it becomes irrational. And then finally, it leads to idolatry. So you can't not worship. So if you reject God, there's going to be something else in your life that you are worshiping. And again, as you're talking to an unbeliever, as we'll learn in the next hour, you want to ask the kind of questions to figure out what does this person worship instead of God? Because they're worshiping something. Something else defines their reality. Something else, if it was taken away from them, would destroy their lives. Something else they love more than anything else in their life. And that's what an idol is. 
Uh, one of the most well-known young novelists in the early to mid-2000s was a guy named David Foster Wallace. People said this is the next great American novelist. He was a kind of bohemian young man. They just made a movie about him uh, recently. Um, young atheist guy. People said this guy's brilliant. He's going to be a great American novelist. And he was an avowed atheist. But a few years ago, he spoke at a, at a college commencement, Kenyon College. You can look it up and see the address. And in that address, this young atheist said this. There's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. That's profound. Here's a guy who, for most of his life, denied that there was anything. And then he says, I've come to realize that Everybody worships something. He goes on to say, you know, it, one of the advantages of worshiping Jesus or Allah, or the fivefold uh, truths or the eightfold noble path, is anything you, anything else you worship outside of a religion, he recognized, will eat you alive. Then he says this: If you worship money and things, if there were your tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He concludes by saying this. He said, the crazy thing is we already know this already. I mean, he basically just quotes Romans 1 applied to today. Everyone worships. We already know this stuff. And if you worship something other than God, it will eat you alive. Sad thing is, shortly after David Foster Wallace gave that address, he took his own life. Because he could not put his faith in Christ, could not find answers to those things. So here's what I know when I talk to someone, even if I don't know anything else about them, they're suppressing the truth of God. In some way, as a result of that, they're being irrational and they're worshiping something else. So as I'm in conversation with them, I want to ask them the kind of questions that reveal what is it that is their God in replacement of the one true God. You say, well, Mark, what about that sweet little old lady that lives next door that's not a believer? Yeah, even her. Even her. Now, we can look at, you know, public figures that are debauched and debased and say, oh, well, obviously Hugh Hefner, he had another God. So does a little old lady that lives next door to you. That's never said a cross word to you as a wonderful neighbor. If she's rejected God, she's suppressing the truth of God and has something else that she worships in her heart. So we conclude by noticing this. The knowledge of God is clear and plain to every person because it is implanted by God. It's not in your notes, but it's the last point under suppression leads to. The knowledge of God is clear and plain. How do we know that? Because God has implanted it. I mentioned my kidney transplant last night. So um, the, the common joke, my brother-in-law Tom was the one who gave me his kidney. So everyone calls my kidney little Tom. So I, I can't deny the presence of part of my brother-in-law in my body. It's there. Why? Because it's been implanted. And to deny it would make no sense because if it stopped working, I'd be in serious trouble in a very short time. But here's what happens. And once, once I, as an unbeliever, begin to uh, express more and more the idolatry of my heart by rejecting God, 
in order to maintain that, I have to exchange the, because the truth of God is constant. It's every day. It's kind of like the sun. The sun, we might not be able to see the sun today, but we know it rose, didn't we? C.S. Lewis has a great saying, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. We know the sun rose today because there's light in the world and there's heat. We haven't all frozen to death, right? In the same way, um, in order to continue to reject the truth of God, I've got to make an exchange. And notice back in Romans chapter 1, verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So in order to maintain this rejection of God, people have to exchange things. So what happens is the unbeliever exchanges the real for the fake. The real for the fake. He says, unbelievers take the glory of God and they exchange it for an image. In other words, God's glory in the Old Testament was typically portrayed as a blinding light. Remember when Israel left Egypt at nighttime, there was a pillar of fire that went from the earth to the heaven and they followed it. When God's glory came into Solomon's temple, it was the Shekinah glory, this blinding light. When Jesus is transfigured in the New Testament, he's portrayed as, as you know, wearing uh, clothes more brilliant than any you know, dry cleaner could ever get out of that. It's just brilliant light. Well, that's the truth of God's glory is when we accept Christ as Savior, we receive the true glory of God and our salvation. But this says people who don't want that exchange that glory for an image. It's kind of like if a guy goes off to, to war, comes home, and, and the whole time he's at war, he's got a picture of his wife and, and his helmet, and he looks at it every day and says, honey, I miss you. How odd would it be if he got home, walked in the door, kissed his wife, then went out to the back porch to sit and gaze at the picture? Right. The reality, the glory is in the kitchen wondering what's going on. And he's out there looking at the image. The reality is what we should be worshiping. But the unbeliever exchanges that truth. Secondly, we're told the unbeliever exchanges the truth for a lie. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That is, again, if you're facing a holy God and you are guilty, you'd rather not face that truth so you find a comfortable lie, something that, that calms your nerves, calms down that sense of guilt. And, and I, you know, here's my religion or my lack thereof that will uh, take care of this awful feeling of impending doom. And then thirdly, we're told the unbeliever exchanges the natural for the unnatural. It says in verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, I always thought growing up that this verse was saying then that homosexuality is the worst sin. It's not, because he's going to go on to give a list of more than 20 sins that fall right in the same category of what happens when people suppress the truth. But what he is saying is homosexuality is the most obvious case of someone taking what is, un, what is natural and putting it aside and accepting what is unnatural. And Paul says the more that a person suppresses the truth of God, the more idolatrous they become, the more irrational they become, 
They exchange the truth for a lie. They exchange glory for an image. And they exchange what is natural for what is unnatural. So what does that mean then? Let's turn to the back here. The unbeliever's suppression of the truth is part of a complex system of belief. A complex system of belief called a worldview. As everybody has a worldview. As Christians, our worldview, and we talk about worldview, we talk about you know, what we think this world is, who we are, what's our identity, what's our purpose, why are we here? Uh, what is the whole goal of life to begin with? That's, that's what makes up your worldview. As Christians, we should have distinctly Christian worldviews. But every person you meet then has developed some kind of a worldview. Where do they fit? A good example is if you accept evolution, then you are just the accident as a result of time and chance of various natural forces that come together and there's nothing special about you. Uh, there's nothing unique about you. You're just an animal, maybe on a higher plane. But there's no purpose in life other than to propagate your own DNA. That, that's, a, that's a worldview that's consistent with this idea that there is no God. As Christians, obviously, we say, no, we are special creations in the image of God. There's a purpose for life here. Our, our identity flows not from anything else other than who God is and what he's made us to be. Here's what a worldview is. It's a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart. It's not just, okay, this is what I believe in my head. It's an orientation of the heart that we hold consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently about the basic constitution of reality. And that provides a foundation on which we live and move and have our being. So again, as I'm talking to an unbeliever, what do I know? They know God because the knowledge of God's implanted. They're suppressing the truth of God in some way. They have uh, other gods they worship, idols in their life, and all this makes up their worldview. And so as I'm, as I'm trying to share the gospel with them, I need to understand all these things if I'm going to uh, respond to their challenges to Christianity directly. It's kind of like, you know, if, if you've got to have surgery, you want to hear a doctor say, is something wrong inside? We're just going to open you up and root around for a while until we find it out. No, you hope that they say, you know, we've done a CAT scan, we've done an MRI, we've done a biopsy. We know exactly what the problem is. We're going to go right in, just a couple of little, little cuts. We're going to go in, we're going to fix it. It'll be like nothing. The problem is sometimes we evangelize. We just want to open people up and just root around. Okay, in what way are you, you know, not believing in God? Which is why by taking the time to ask questions, we're going to learn about this in the next hour, when, you, when they begin to tell you, here's what I believe, here's my worldview, here's, here's how I feel okay with the universe, or whatever, however they describe it, then when you begin to share the gospel, you're targeting it right at the point where they are struggling. So a few years ago, I was on a plane from North Carolina to Philadelphia, and Sat next, down to, uh, sat next to this guy who was so much fun. I mean, we, he started telling stories. We were laughing, and he was a very funny guy. Uh, he asked, what do you do? And at the time, I was a seminary professor. He goes, oh, I, you know, I really, uh, I really you know, love, love church and love God, and that's, that's great. And I began to ask some questions to kind of get to the heart of what he believed or didn't believe. And he said, oh, I think, you know, I think Jesus is a great guy, except that one time he sinned. He really set a real good example. I said, come again? He said, you know, that one time Jesus sinned. I said, uh, when was that? 
He said, uh, I don't know. I, didn't he sin? I said, no, I, I know the Bible fairly well, and I don't know that he sinned at all. He goes, well, what about that time that his mother told him to turn water into wine? I mean, didn't he, like, snap at her? I said, well, he, he did rebuke her because she wanted him to show his power before it was time to do that. Oh, so he didn't sin then. No, he didn't sin then. I'm really glad you cleared that up. And then all of a sudden like that, the conversation changed. He said, you know, he had been in the military. He said, you know, when, when we were in Iraq, we did some really bad things. It's like this conversation went from very lighthearted to very serious all of a sudden. I said, okay. Uh, he said, that he, I was part of a Ford operating base that we were guarding a larger base, and we had to keep uh, suicide bombers away. So I had orders to shoot men at 200 yards if they would not stop coming toward our position. He said, I had orders to shoot women at 100 yards. You know what's next? I had orders to shoot children at 50 yards if they would not stop coming toward us because he said they would wire the kids up and send them in. And he said, how could God ever forgive me for what I did over there? And so we went from, I think Jesus is a great guy, to just through conversation, getting to the heart of the issue. He didn't think he could ever be forgiven. And at that point, then, it was very easy to share the gospel with him. Like many of my encounters, I never heard from him again. <laughs> Even though, because I, I have to keep in mind, I'm just planting seeds. God's going to save this person uh, someday if, if, you know, if they respond in faith. Um, but I was able to direct then my sharing of the gospel right to the heart of what his issue, which was, I don't think I can ever be forgiven. And that's what we want to do is we understand every unbeliever in our lives. So Ryan's going to come up now. We're going to do uh, a dialogue. He's going to play the part of an unbeliever. I don't know exactly what he's going to say. And I'm going to try to give you an example of here's how you would respond to, um, to the kind of things that they might say. So I think we have a microphone over here. Yep. Again, why don't you sit here? So we'll do this now and then uh, after the next session to kind of show you here's, here's how as a Christian we can respond when we're trying to share the gospel and encountering unbelievers. So are we on a plane or a coffee shop? Or? Yeah, we'll do the coffee shop. Okay. But I'm going to be playing the part of an atheist who relies very much on science. So, so, so my arguments are going to be drawn from that perspective, and then the next session we're going to do uh, someone who's a relativist, and we're going to talk about. So this one's going to be a little bit more directed than the next one. So, how you doing there? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm good. What are you working on? Uh, I'm just working on some homework for my uh, for my uh, chemistry class. Oh, okay. Are you like science? I love science. Yeah. Yes, I love science. And Is that what you're majoring in in school? Yeah, yeah. I'm just right now. I'm just exploring exploring the different sciences and just seeing seeing the truths that they have to offer. Okay. Um, to help us out as as humanity. Yeah, that's neat. I'm I'm fascinated by science, but I'm. It's really not my area of expertise, but I, obviously, in the way that the world is today, we can appreciate all that science has discovered. What do you do for a living? Uh, I'm a shoe salesman. Oh, nice. Yeah, so obviously with feet that big, you've got to, you know, <laughs> be able to find good uh, suppliers. But let me ask you this, though. Um, I, I really like science. I'm fascinated by it. But uh, have you ever thought about the limits of science, like what science can and can't do? Uh, no, I don't. What do you mean by the limits of science? Well, I mean, some people think that science can answer everything, uh, any kind of question in the world, but what about, uh, what about things that aren't 
you know, science can only deal with the physical world. What about things like, you know, uh, morality and right and wrong or the purpose of our lives? I think science can, can help us, uh, it can help us influence our beliefs by understanding what's helpful for, for humanity. So when we understand how our bodies work and how our minds work, we can understand that certain things are helpful and not helpful. And I think that's kind of where we can get our idea of morality from. Okay. Now, when you say helpful, do you mean what's helpful to an individual or lots of people, like yeah. immediately or far off? I would say what's helpful to an individual. Okay. So what happens if what's helpful to you conflicts with what hel what's helpful to me? I think, I think probably, well, you know, it might be, you know, maybe what's helpful for may a group of people. Okay. You know, keeping in mind those different uh, individual needs within there. Sure. So you like maybe a, a community or something like that? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So in that sense, is the person, the individual person that wants to do something that's harmful to the community, do they have to put aside what they want? Um, yeah, I, I would say so. They, they would probably have to put aside what they want. Okay. And what about, what about the relationship of a community to a larger group? Like obviously we're here in Lancaster. Um, should, I, should I only be concerned about my family and my neighborhood or should I be concerned about the whole city or the state or the world? At what point does, does that uh, stop or should I be concerned about other people too? Yeah, well I think you should seek the good of, of everyone. Okay. What happens if the good, let, let's say, uh, you know, it, it'd be good for me to, uh, you know, to get rid of certain people in society. Would you be okay with that? Uh, no, I, I mean... That's, I don't think that's for the good of everyone, you know, but I, yeah. Okay. One of the reasons I ask this is because I'm a Christian and I oh, think... nice. There we go. <laughs> now, now, why do you say that? Well, you know, I, I, think, I, I think I know what you're going to say. And, I, you know, I, I've had some experiences with Christianity in the past, but I'm, I'm an atheist now. I, I, hmm. I'm more enlightened than I was in the past. And Okay. So what were you before? Uh, before, I would say I was probably, well, I used to, I used to attend um, the United Church of Christ with my mother, and, and I, it made her feel better, and that's good for her, but I just found, I found my meaning in science. Okay, good. And how old were you when you made that decision? Uh, I was about a senior in high school. Okay, good. So do you feel like your mother's religion was there just to help her get through life? Like, is it, is it something to help people cope with life? Is that what religion is to you? Yeah, I would say so. Okay. So, so you trust in science now for, for, yeah. for how much? I mean, is that everything? I mean, I would say I bank the majority of my life off of, off of science and what I know is helpful to me and what's yeah. helpful to others. What, what do you do when scientists disagree with one another? I mean, how do you determine which one's right? Which one's wrong? I think, I think it depends on you know whoever just has the most evidence. Okay. Interesting. So when it comes to so you don't believe in God? No. no. Okay. So when it comes to things like how we find meaning in this life, does science give that answer? Um, I think that science can can give us, I think the meaning that can give us it is that we can produce a better future. Mm. We may never see that future, so there's an aspect of there where there, you know, isn't much hope for you, but you can help somebody in the future out. Okay. Now let me ask you this. In your view, I would take it you're an evolutionist. Mm -hmm. You believe that all this came about through time and chance. Mm -hmm. 
Would you also believe that all we are as people is the collection of our DNA, that, that the only things that exist are what's physical in this world, material? Yes, yeah. Okay. So there really is no me outside of just my body? No. Okay. Um, so what about things like justice? Do you believe in justice? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and where do you find this concept of justice? It's not like, you know, typically in science, scientists believe in something they can see and study, and, you know, they, 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 they believe this chemical because they can see it under a microscope. Uh, where do you get this concept of justice from? I think we all generally know what's right and what's wrong. And so mm -hmm. I think we can get our justice as, as we agree what's right and wrong. What happens, though, when we don't agree? Like, who decides? Let's say, for example, that... Um, that in my community of people, we feel that we ought to be uh, aggressive and assertive and that, you know, the weak get what they deserve and, and we can take from them. Is, is there anything in science that would tell us that's wrong? I guess not, but I, I feel like we would, we would know what was wrong and mm. what was right. And, and what makes something right or wrong? Because if I assume that you don't believe that there's any kind of spiritual world out no. there. Okay. So is, is, what, is what is right and wrong basically just whatever happens or what the strong do? I mean, you're talking about that we should care about one another. Mm -hmm. But if all there is in this world is just, you know, physical beings, um, where do you get the sense of right and wrong? I've never thought of that. I've never thought about that before. Yeah. I don't know. And I, I think your I think your intuition is right that there is there are such things as justice and compassion. As a Christian, that comes uh, from the nature of God, who's compassionate, who's just, who's loving. And so, as a Christian, I I agree with you that we ought to be concerned about things like justice. But that flows out of the very existence of God, how He made the world, how He made me as a reflection of Him, and He's revealed Himself in the Bible. Um, do you know anything about Jesus? Uh, you know, I've studied him in some of my history classes. I think he was a, I think he was a great guy. I think he was a good moral teacher, but okay. beyond that, I don't think he was, you know, the son of God or, you know, whatever yeah. different religions claim. Okay, so you'd say he was just a good teacher. Yeah. One of the things that the Bible says is Jesus claimed over and over again to be God, claimed to be the only way to, to get to heaven, claimed that those who rejected him would suffer hellfire. Does that sound like a good teacher to you? Sounds like some of my teachers when I don't hand in my homework. Okay, right? yeah. <laughs> That's, I, as a former teacher before I was a shoe salesman, I can understand that. Um, but he, here's, here's something about Jesus a lot of people don't realize, is they want to just reduce him to a moral teacher, but when you actually read what he says, he claims to be God. I don't know how you could be a good moral teacher and claim to be God, claim to be the only way to, to heaven. Uh, I would either say that that guy's a, a liar, or he's crazy, or, or he is who he says he is. Yeah. So when it comes to science, as you mentioned, it's hard to know what is right and wrong, because science can only deal with the physical world, and that's part of reality. But if there's, some, if there's nothing beyond that, then we're basically picking and choosing what we think to be good or evil. So we'll stop right there, just kind of give you a, a quick dialogue there. What did you notice about most of my conversation with him from my end? Anybody notice anything? It's all I did was ask questions. And one of the things we're going to learn in the next hour is too many times we're talking to an unbeliever, we want to jump up and say, no, that's wrong, and here's why. No, that's wrong. No, you're wrong. 
And that doesn't encourage conversation, does it? No one likes to be told they're wrong. But if you ask questions that which maybe undermine their confidence in their unbelief or lead them toward a conclusion uh, or ask them questions about themselves, most of the time that keeps the conversation going. And what we're trying to do is show a relational side to evangelism where we show a genuine concern for that person. And all I'm trying to do, I'm not trying to go for the kill. Um, and it's kind of like if you're a baseball fan, you know, people that are always trying to hit home runs are usually not good hitters. It's people who are just trying to connect with the ball, have a surprising high number of, of hits because they're, they're not shooting too high. All I'm trying to do in this conversation, in this case with a stranger, is begin to undermine some of his beliefs because he may cut me off at a certain point or the conversation might go far. But as I'm undermining some of his beliefs, causing him to doubt them, showing contradiction, I'm then beginning to weave in the gospel. And what I'm trying to do is show the irrationality of his unbelief and his view of science. Justice, that's just what I think is justice. And there's no universal uh, moral law which should guide our conversations. Contrasting that with justice as a characteristic of a, of a divine God who's revealed himself and then came into this world as a man and showed us what justice looks like. So I'm trying to set in contrast those two things so he can see uh, my views really doesn't make sense, but here's this person, Jesus, that, uh, that answers these questions. So let me take some questions here. We've got a few minutes for questions about what I did in this conversation. Shelby? Um, I noticed a couple times, like, you affirming, like, things that may be correct mm. that he said, but showing how intentional are you with that affirming but redirecting of that yeah, very good. Whenever an unbeliever says something that's true, you want to affirm them. You know, oh, I'm so glad that you said that because justice is an important thing. I agree with you. But where does your worldview provide that justice? It makes sense in my worldview. It doesn't make sense in yours. Because, and this is going to happen. Why? Because this unbeliever is made in the image of God. So he's going to get some things right intuitively. And the next dialogue that we do in the next hour, he's going to, I think he's going to do something on evil and suffering where he's going he's gonna to grieve some loss that he has. But it, if I live in a world where evolution is true and there's no God, there's no need to grieve. It's just the way the world works, and you know we should not be sad about that, that everything is just fine. And we're going to talk about the fact that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And he can't deny his humanity. Even though he's saying there is no God, he can't deny the fact that he weeps over injustice and loss and things like that. So you always want to affirm when they get something right, but just show how it makes sense in your worldview. It's a great observation. Someone else? You've got a bunch of questions that are taking him down a path. Do you know where you're going? No. I mean, I've done this enough times that I, I have some ideas, but we're going to cover that. If here's some different directions you can take the conversation. Yeah, you, you, you want to be careful that you're not, uh, you don't want to make them feel entrapped, which is why I'm going to let, I want to ask questions, let him do a lot of talking, and, and then challenge the things that he says as opposed to forcing him into a corner. That's a really good distinction. Because if the conversation starts to feel like a trap, people are going to be like, you know, I'd, I'd rather not talk to you. This is, 
awkward, you know, feel like you're trying to sell me, you know, something. And we don't want to come across as salesmen. But if this person is passionate about their unbelief, I'm going to let them talk. And, and the truth is, in every expression of unbelief, there's something that you can say as a Christian, questions you can ask that will challenge those unbeliefs. So I'm going to respond. But that's a really good distinction. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think you set the tone for something like that in the sense that you, when you approach the conversation intentionally say, saying to yourself, I want to get to know this mm. person rather than I have these questions, I just need to lead them down this path and I just need to get them until I can finally trap them. But I think your demeanor and your responses and your questions set the tone for that conversation. Because if you do start off with that, I know exactly where I want to take them. They'll pick up on that because, yeah. you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, when, when your mom or somebody else is, is asking you questions that you know are intended to give a specific response. This is a real life uh, testimony here. <laughs> you, know, you know that this is not just, you know that this question is going to lead to a follow-up question. And so I think that's, yeah, just letting them talk for a while and in your mind saying, I really want to get to know this person so, so that I can talk to them about the gospel, but not just I want to lead them down a series of questions. Which is one of the reasons why I'm not big on the way of the master, Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron, because they are trying to shoehorn you into... You know, you've always got to talk about the law. Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever lied? Then you know you're guilty. That's, they have a one-track approach. This approach is really whatever response I get from this person regarding their beliefs and their life, I'm going to adjust to what they're saying because I know that whatever we're talking about, there's an inroad to the gospel in what they're saying. I see another hand. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. At some point in the conversation, what I'll often do is I'll ask questions and listen, sometimes 10, 15, 20 minutes, because I, I want to genuinely communicate that I'm interested in you and what you have to say. At some point, I need to start talking about Jesus in the Bible, so it'd be better for me to say, I'm a Christian and here's how I respond, as opposed to, you know, there's these... There's this ancient Hebrew writing I'd like to refer to here, or this early Greco-Roman religious writing. As soon as you mention the Bible, they know. So at some point, I want to mention that. And it may shut down the conversation, but the truth is I've got to bring in Jesus in the Scripture at some point. So I've got to take that opportunity. And if they say, oh, you're a Christian, I don't want to talk about that. Oh, really? Why not? Why does that, why does that bother you? Again, it's like I'm just asking questions so when someone says, I'm an atheist or, you know, I don't like Christians, that's not the end of the conversation. Be inquisitive. Why not? That's interesting. I, I, you know, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to talk about that. Now, we don't want to be too pushy. We'll talk in the next hour about if someone says, I'd rather not talk about it, we need to be respectful and say, okay. But even that, um, you'd be surprised, can have a comeback. We have time for one more question, then a break. Yeah, but do great. You have like some guidelines for where to start. 
because like I mean a friend that I've known for a while I may already know what but somebody that I'm just running into I may not know and I I don't I wouldn't necessarily know how to like approach that to figure out where their heart is Right. So it, it does help to, to read up on different worldviews and belief systems, but there's so many out there you can never know them all. I don't know them all. So the key is, oh, you're you're uh, you know, you're you're a Wiccan mother goddess. Tell me about that. I've never I mean really you you don't have to know um, because you're going to ask them. I've never met someone who is, uh, you know, high anarchist Satanist. That's very interesting. Tell me about what do, what do you believe? And so there are questions like, um, what do you think the purpose of life is? And how do you how do you tell right from wrong in your belief system? Where do you get your sense of meaning? There are a few questions like that, but you're going to let them do the talking. And this is important because someone might say, oh, I'm a Catholic, and you might know some something about Catholicism. But I've had a lot of Catholics say, well, I'm Catholic, but I don't really believe in confession or in you know, purgatory. So if you assume, oh, Catholic, okay, so you believe one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and you don't take the time to listen to them, they're going to say, well, no, I don't, I don't believe in that kind of Catholicism. Because there's multiple kinds of Hindus, multiple kinds of Muslims, multiple kinds of Buddhists, multiple kinds of Catholics, multiple kinds of atheists. So it's better not to assume. That's why knowing a little bit helps you. But don't assume knowing a lot about something you can shoehorn because that person then will, will say, well, I, I take a twist on this belief system. So you want to ask questions and show genuine interest. Tell me about that. You know, do you have festivals? Do you have practices? Do you, do you gather together as, you know, uh, pastafarians? Have you ever heard of uh, the Flying Spaghetti Monster? It was, uh, you might have seen um, bumper stickers. It looks like two meatballs with eyes and then spaghetti arms. About 10, 15 years ago, some atheists decided to, to make a parody of, of an invisible god, and they call it the Flying Spaghetti Monster, who's invisible uh, and who rules the world. It's, it's, a, it's a mockery of Christianity, but they call themselves Pastafarians. And um, they say there's as much evidence for the Flying Spaghetti Monster as, as for God. You know, if you encounter someone like that, oh, tell me about that. Is, is this like a joke or is it real? You're just going to ask questions. Exactly, yes. If someone says they're a Christian, you, you, well, what kind of Christian? There's a lot of people who claim to be Christian, and they might say, well, I, I'm a Mormon Christian. Oh, okay. Well, that changes it. Or they're a Christian who believes that, because there's a lot of Christians who believe your works contribute to your salvation. Um, there's a lot of people in cults who think they are Christians. So, you, yeah, you've got to ask. One more question. Yeah, right. Depending on where I am or how I perceive the, the label Christian, I might say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a believer in Jesus, something like that. Because for some people, Christian has such a negative connotation. All right. We're going to take a break and come back and cover the third session. Thanks.